Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is a Lip Media Podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. We pay our respect to elders past and present and the Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening today. Welcome to The Gays Are Revolting, a dissection of social and cultural issues relevant to gay men. We put the G in LGBTQIA+, and we're here to help you be the best G you can be. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or join our community on Facebook by searching The Gays Are Revolting. And this is our second, ooh, to last <gasps> episode. No. Oh my god. <laughs> God. It's scary, ooky, spooky. Do we cease but- to exist after that? Are we like Tinkerbells and like people stop listening to us, we stop existing? <laughs> <laughs> Only once we stop getting likes on Instagram do we stop existing. Oh, God. Okay, well, I'm good for a while. Yeah, just, <laughs> rem- just remember your value is not measured by the amount of content that you produce, Kyle. Yeah. So it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's it's going quick. <laughs> I, I've, yeah. I've started, uh, I, I'm doing spiritual coaching from home. Okay. I'm doing that fort daily, which is a new term I've made up, which is like fort, <laughs> fortnightly, but it's. What's your other job? Maker upper of words. <laughs> yeah, it's for every other day. No, I'm just joking around. It is sad, but it's our second to last episode. We've been uh, trying to jam-pack as much good content in them really excited mm. oh my god on twitter someone posted about us and ending the show and i was like don't worry we'll all open up only fan- we'll all start only fans after the show ends and that tweet was like my least liked tweet in the history like people were like <laughs> no <Okay>. thank you <laughs> and people are just confused why would they pay for it when it's all over the internet already yeah. oh my gosh yeah. you just gotta google you type in L into the Google bar and it just auto completes. Oh my gosh. Just Luke's nudes. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Just everywhere. uh, What do we have coming up this episode? We've got a very exciting interview with a very uh, dear friend of mine, uh, Deborah McDougall. Um, Deb's not famous. She's just an all round legend. Deb um, grew up in the American Midwest, so in, in a relatively conservative part of Iowa, and then was a self described fag hat. 
tag on the uh, San Fran gay scene through the 70s and 80s and and moved over to Australia and has had a really incredible life. And she's someone that I've really wanted to get on the podcast for such a long time. So I'm thrilled that we're finally, finally got her on there uh, for the second last episode. And it's a fascinating You got interview. it in on time. Yeah, just. Yeah, cool, awesome. Now, today for our 100th episode, I am joined by one of my dearest friends and self-proclaimed fag hag, Deborah McDougall. Deborah was born in the United States in 1952 and has been a part of the global gay scene since she was old enough to hold a mimosa and a bottle of amyl. She's had a fascinating life, uh, one which I had the pleasure of learning all about 11 years ago when she was my boss at Melbourne's Arts Centre's box office. She continues to stay connected with the gay scene today, and I can tell you she may be in her late 60s, but she can definitely still pull a move on the dance floor at the Peel. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled. Of course, we've talked about having you on for such a long time, and we were hoping that we'd be able to do it in person after this awful virus. But uh, as the show's ending, I thought we'd better do it remotely. But you've got a glass of wine in hand. I do. I've got a glass of wine in hand. So we're ready to go. Great. I'm ready. Now, Deb, you grew up in a relatively conservative area in Iowa in the American Midwest. What was that like? Well, I was born in the 50s, like you said, and it was a fairly conservative time. But I grew up in a small town in northeast Iowa uh, that was predominantly Scandinavian people, mostly Norwegians. But and they started a small university in the 18th end of the 1800s. So because of the university, it was a little bit more progressive than a lot of the Midwest, which was lucky for me. I grew up right on the edge of the campus, and so almost all my neighbors were professors at the school. And my neighbor directly across the street, they had three red-haired kids. We had four red-haired kids. And our neighbor up the street had three red-haired kids. And then around 1963, they adopted a child that was half American Indian and half African American. And that was such a sign of the times because it was the head of the Des Moines Register paper that an unadoptable child was adopted. Because in those they use the word they, unadoptable. Yeah, it's the headlines of the paper. Oh, my God. Because... In those days, it was just unheard of for a white, highly educated family to adopt a child. And she's now a very successful physician in New Orleans. And then about three years later, they adopted a second mixed race child. And I used to babysit for all of them. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, it was nice growing up in a somewhat open-minded community. And am I right in thinking it it was when you were in Iowa when you first fell pregnant? Yes, uh, that was at the University of Iowa when I was at school, which being a university town, again, was fairly progressive for that area. And, you know, it was the years of sex, drugs and rock and roll. So I fell pregnant in my second year of school. And unfortunately, Roe versus Wade hadn't happened yet. It was right before it. So I went through the Women's Center and flew to New York all by myself. My boyfriend sold enough pot to pay for it and had an abortion. And then right after that, Roe versus Wade was finally passed. Yeah, You know, women were taking such incredible risks to have control over their reproduction. Yeah. So, so you had to fly all the way to New York to have, legally have an abortion. Right. Did, you, did your family know about it? No. And oh, I... My God made the big mistake. It was Thanksgiving about 25 years ago. I 
had some wine and was feeling all warm and fuzzy. I was with my parents and I told my mother I had an abortion. And the minute I said it, I knew it was the worst mistake I'd Thing ever you made. Said to her. Yeah. It's because she just couldn't understand it. Mm. I can't understand what it would have been like for women at that time to, to have to go through such scary hoops to, to have control of your own body. Oh, it was terrifying. I know people that went to Mexico mm. and, you know, had completely unsafe experiences mm. so i mean i was lucky because i went through the university in new york so it was all relatively safe <laughs> the crazy thing is i had it at this women's center yeah and then right when i came out of the anesthetic they were like your plane's leaving from LaGuardia in you know an hour and they were like well she can't leave right now so i missed my flight had to get another flight flew you know really late that night and landed in a small town about an hour and a half away from the university. In those days, they were closing the airport at midnight, and it was mm. like 30 below zero because it was January. So luckily, the janitor let me sit in his janitor closet inside oh the airport goodness. until Mark arrived. Oh, you poor thing. After just having an abortion in another state. Oh, my God. Yeah. Your stories are amazing, Deborah. I'm so glad <laughs> to have you on this podcast to talk about them. Now, your part, your boyfriend then, is that your now husband, Mark? Yes. So you've been together, how many years does that make? Well, it? We've been married for, since 1975. Mm. So that's. Uh, it's 20, 40, it's 45 40 years. years. Yes. <laughs> so that's 45 years. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, were together before that for a little bit. Yeah. The story of how you got married is a, a fantastic one. Can you tell me that? Yeah, well, we met getting tear gas together in the dorm at the University of Iowa protesting the Vietnam War. So that was a crazy way to meet your future husband. Yeah. And then, well, we got married in my hometown, but, you know, we were hippies. So I didn't have a wedding ring. I didn't, you know, I had my dress made. It was actually really conservative for those days, but no puffy sleeves, nothing like that. Yeah. Um. Then right after that, we moved to San Francisco. And you, and because you went on a holiday to San Francisco first, right, to visit your, your grandmother, and then you came back and said to Mark, you can either break up with me or you can marry me. Is that right? That's right, because I graduated from university, and my grandmother spent half the year in San Francisco with her sister, who was an artist and had lots of gay artist friends, and half the year in Iowa, which was a real eye-opener for my grandmother. <clears throat> and she decided as a present for graduating from university that she would fly me out for a couple of weeks. So I went out and the second I landed, I knew this was home. I just, that was, was a place for you. That was a place for me. So, you know, I spent two great week weeks with her and then I came back to Iowa and said to Mark, I'm moving to San Francisco. So it's either break up or get married. So we got married and I said to my mother, I want to get married in two weeks. And she about freaked out. So I'm like, all right, three, but that's my limit. We're moving <laughs> to California. And we did kind of a version of the wishing well, which they didn't call it that back then. It just asked for money. So we'd have money to move. Yeah. And then my grandmother got me an apartment in right downtown San Francisco for three months. And she was just like, well, either you'll find a job and stay or you'll have a great three months and go back home. So, and of course, you did end up staying. Yes. And we, you know, we moved there in 1975. And that was in the middle, you know, the writing of Tales of the City, which was a newspaper article in the San Francisco Chronicle. 
So I was kind of like Marianne, one of the main characters, trudging up down the street to San Francisco in my polyester pants. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And loved every minute of it. Now, you got a job selling tickets at Macy's, which led to you working in, in box office and theatres around San Francisco. Uh, most of your colleagues were gay men at the theatre. And from what I understand, things were a little bit more unruly there than when you were my boss at the art centre. Uh, tell me what that working environment was like. Well, when I got the job at Macy's, I was put into a lease department that sold theater tickets. And back then, you know, there were no computers. You actually walked up to the counter. We wrote out and voucher by hand. And then we had a big board and we, you know, would write down, Thomas is going to see the Umbrellas of Sherbourg tonight, two tickets in the circle. And then we call all the theaters, you know, make reservations and then hand the person the voucher. You know, I was really friendly and got to know everybody I was talking to. So, you know, I met some really interesting people there. And then I got offered a job working for San Francisco Civic Light Opera, which was a Broadway theater. So it was a great time to be in theater in the end of the Mm. 70s, beginning of the 80s. And you got to work on some pretty amazing shows and meet some pretty incredible people. Can you name drop a few for us? Probably the most exciting was Liza Minnelli was in a show called Shine It On and Coppola was the director and it was pre-Broadway. They used to trial a lot of shows in San Francisco, San Diego before they would go to Broadway. I imagine that a Liza Minnelli show would do very well in San Francisco in the late 70s. Yes. And the best (laughs) part was they were rehearsing all the time. So I would just sneak in and sit in this old, beautiful theater and watch them rehearse Mm. and she was a wonderful person Mm. and you can tell old theater people like she thanked everybody that worked on her show from the stage that's right she came and gave you all gifts and stuff didn't she she gave us all cards handwritten cards i still have mine and gave us all gifts she was amazing really amazing and then another highlight was working on annie get your gun starring debbie reynolds oh wow it was just amazing to be able to see her and then I worked on the first, the original uh, production of Avita with Mandy Patinkin and Patty Lapone. Amazing. And Mandy wasn't even a very big star then. And he, you know, would just come up to the box. He was like my age. We were in our 20s and talked to us. And I guess another highlight was I got yelled at by Rock Hudson. He was, <laughs> he was in a production of um, On the 20th Century. He came to the box office and said, you know, whispered, I'm Rod Hudson. He had sunglasses on. I'm like, yeah, I can tell who you are. And he's like, you have to let me in the theater. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. Hudson. I can't let you through the front of the house. I have to get somebody to escort you through the back yeah. of the house. And he was just started screaming at me. Somebody's going to recognize me. Oh and I'm just like, well, if you wouldn't raise your voice, maybe nobody will recognize yeah. you. <laughs> but anyway, then poor Rock, he ended up dying of AIDS. I know, I know. So... Now that you, was a few of the highlights. Yeah, some pretty amazing ones too. A lot more exciting than some of the people we got at the Art Centre box office. Uh, yeah. Now, you quickly found your place on the San Francisco gay scene. Did they welcome you with open arms? Yes, absolutely. Because I had so many friends through work that were gay, mm. I didn't really feel like it was kind of like the gay scene or they were it was just, just your... part of my life. Yeah. But I definitely had a really good time. That's for mm. sure. And this is it's the Castro, isn't it, that you were hanging out on? Well, Castro is the main gay neighborhood, and we lived right above it. 
and I'm proud to say it's the gayest zip code in the world. Yeah, nine four one one four. And Mark and I actually looked up on the internet today to verify that that was correct. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm proud to say it is. And what was a night like? To describe a night out for me in the late seventies. Well, the late seventies, because it was pre-AIDS, it was the clubs, dancing, amyl nitrates. I mean, I obviously never partake of the bathhouses or anything like that, but people just didn't worry. Mm. You know, the biggest thing you had to worry about was getting pregnant or getting a venereal disease. There wasn't Mm. anything that was life-threatening yet. You know, my generation didn't grow up with this fear that, you know, sex could equal dying, which is Mm. what happened in the 80s. And what about, if you don't mind me asking, and and answer as much as you want to be honest about, we talk about drug use a lot on this show. Uh, What was the drug scene like there? What kind of drugs were people doing? I mean, our real introduction to drugs was at the University of Iowa. We were hippies, of course it was. Yeah. So we, you know, started out smoking marijuana, then taking acid. We probably took acid once a week, you know, a couple of years. And then... Mark and I got into jazz music, and we progressed to cocaine. That's a gateway drug itself, Deborah. (laughs) Yes, and then heroin. Oh, wow. So we definitely pushed the boundaries of of trying to. Yeah, you really went the full spectrum. We were very experimental. Would you you consider that you were ever an addict, or did you just use drugs as a sort of a part, like a social and, and for fun times? No, we were addicts. You were addicts, wow. Well, we, mm. you know, started using drugs pretty heavily at the University of Iowa. And then we kind of progressed to heroin. It was like, oh, well, you could do something and be pretty normal, you know, we thought, and still carry on with your life. And because we were kind of loners, we'd do heroin and listen to jazz. And then it kind of started getting out of control. And then we did what so many people do at Geographical, which is, you know, that was another reason we were to San Francisco. We won't do drugs if we go there. Well, it was San Francisco. So, of course, you know, we stayed straight for about two months. Then we started using drugs again. Mm-hmm. And it started getting out of control. And finally, we went on a methadone program. And we did that for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I had to date. One day I was working at the ticket center and I had to go pick up three or four hundred tickets for Elvis Presley concert. And in the meantime, I stopped off to get my dose of methadone. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, if anyone knew, I had 400 tickets to Elvis Presley <laughs> in the backseat. And a bunch of methadone. <laughs> yes. But then we eventually did the S training, the Earhart Seminar training. And it, it really changed our whole focus and kind of opened us up to enlightenment. And we started detoxing of drugs and changed our com- life completely. And. Is it fair to say that you continued to dabble in some of the lighter drugs after that, but just steered clear of the more severe drugs? Yeah. Or were you off it completely after that? Well, Mark was off it completely because he got hepatitis C and really had to be off it. And probably my drug of choice would be wine. So (laughs) I pretty much stuck to that and that was it. Cheers to that. Now, to go back to where we were, so you, you've been working at the theatre and that sort of stuff, and it was around about this time that you met your best friend, Mark. So you, your husband's name, Mark, but you also uh, met your best friend, Mark, who you always had a photograph of on your desk the whole time that you and I worked together. Uh, what was he like? Oh, Mark was just a wonderful person. 
I just always thought he was put on this planet to make people happy. I'm looking at that picture of him right now. And I didn't meet him until the early 90s when I started working for Shorenstein Hayes Nederlander, which is one of the big Broadway theaters in San Francisco. He was an usher and then he worked in the box office. And, you know, he was just like you, Thomas, really good at his job, really fun. We had such a good time together. And he just made everybody happy. Was it you and him? You've told me the story about how sometimes you used to fill your mugs up with wine and then you'd cut the tag off the tea bag and then sticky tape it to the inside of the mug so people thought you were drinking tea when you really were just getting drunk before you went out after work. Was that him? Well, we do that at the box office so that nobody knew we were drinking wine. Yeah. (laughs) But it worked well. We we didn't go overboard, but we had a good time doing it. Yeah. A hot tip for everyone. Yes. You know, he was, he got AIDS late enough that he should have been careful. And it's funny, when when it came down to the very end, he said to me one night, if I had known how much I was going to suffer, I never would have thrown caution to the wind. Mm. Because he didn't die until 96, and he was 37. So, you know, it was the people I knew at the end of the 70s and 80s that it was just a ticking time bomb. They had no idea Mm. what was happening. I remember the second apartment we lived in in San Francisco, it was a lot of gay men lived there. We had actually had a swimming pool, which is very odd for San Francisco. But, you know, it was mostly younger people without families because they didn't want kids around the pool. But the gentleman upstairs, I remember he got sick about 1979. And back then they just called it the gay pneumonia. They had no idea what they were even dealing with at that point. Mm. And I have another friend that I worked with at the theaters that he had been part of a hepatitis study with gay men in the end of the 70s. And then in the 80s, they asked them if they could unthaw their blood and see if they were already HIV positive. And Mickle gave us permission, and he was. He mm. lived until about 98, which was pretty good. But mm. We always said Jägermeister kept him alive. well that sort of leads me to my next question so after being on the gay scene for a few years a lot of your friends started getting sick and of course at the start none of no one knew that this was the beginning of the AIDS crisis I can't imagine how scary that must have been to be you know in the epicenter of that in San Francisco what are your memories of those early days of the AIDS crisis you know like anything else you're just going on about your business and your life and just slowly things started to evolve. And, you know, less upstairs was the first time we remember thinking, hmm, there's something going on. Mm-mm. You know, the tragedy of the whole thing is, you know, we lost so many people in the arts, in costume design, in movies, films, theater, music, dance, that it's just so much of that whole the generation. box office. Box office. Because, mm. you know, the big theater company, Shorenstein Hayes, Nederlander, they practically had enough people that died in the phone room to make a quilt, you know, a section of the quilt. Mm. Like now they can't even unveil the quilt because it's so big. It's so huge, yeah. Yeah, I, the last time they did it was years ago. And am I right in thinking that some of your friends' family members who they'd not been in touch with for years made it really difficult for their partners to be involved in their funeral? Well, you heard lots of stories where they'd either swoop in and claim, reclaim their son or refuse to acknowledge what was happening. 
um, Mark's family were really understanding and, you know, loved him to bits, but even they couldn't kind of get their head around flying into San Francisco, being around, you know, an environment that they was so different because he was from Wisconsin, which is the Midwest too. And, you know, afterwards they started just packing up a lot of stuff from his apartment and it's like he had a roommate. So they didn't even respect that, you know, half of these belongings were Brett's, not Mark's. And, you know, Mark had given Brett money to put away that they didn't know about so that we could do a really good party afterwards. Mm -hmm. When Mark died, what we decided to do was wait, you know, six to eight weeks. So it wasn't really, really sad. And then we had a martini party because <laughs> he loved Gorgeous. martinis. So we put pictures all over the house of him that we blew up and, you know, just had a night together and remembered. Mm. What was it like looking after him and, and eventually having to say goodbye to him? Well, it was good and bad. I mean, we had some really fun times. Like he was call me up and say, I've got some Percocets, you know, pain medication, come over and we'll have one and lay in bed and watch soap operas. We made it a good time. And, you know, my birthday, we always made really special. So the last one, we went to see Harry Belafonte, you know, he gave me a card with some Percocets on it. Amazing. You know, we tried to make the best of it, Mm. but it was difficult. Like, you know, there was so much experimental medication at that point. I remember one day he took a drug that they'd given him and he couldn't even talk after it, you know, came into effect. So he just wrote on a piece of paper, take me to SF general, went down and flagged a cab down and gave it to him. And they took him to the hospital and they talked to him and finally it started wearing off. And they said, do you know your name? And he said, yeah, chair. And they said, Oh, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he sounds like the most amazing person. Honestly, I, I'm so sad. That very I funny. I mean, when he died, too, his obituary, which they wouldn't print in San Francisco paper, they would only put in the gay paper, was, Lord, there's a wild one coming up. Oh, bless. <laughs> so be prepared. But there was also hard things, because I used to take him shopping, and he was a tall man. He was naturally pretty skinny, but he was really skinny. And, you know, he'd have two canes, and, you know, people would be like, is it AIDS? And it's like, no shit, Sherlock. And were you there when he died as well? He died in August of 1997. And on Saturday, I was at the theater working and he called me and he said, you got to come for the Last Supper. I've got pneumocystis and I'm going to die. And his doctor had told him that he would make sure he had enough morphine that he wouldn't suffer for very long. But it's funny, he went to see a doctor and there was another doctor in the room and he said something about that. And his doctor was like, later, you can never say that in front of another doctor because I can lose my license for saying that. Mm. But they did give him morphine. And then we, it was kind of crazy because we had so many people at his bedside for the whole week. And by about Thursday, it was making his mother really she was having a hard time with so many people around. Like so many people brought food and booze that we broke the shelf in his refrigerator. Oh my gosh. And, you know, somebody actually sat on his, that had his morphine hooked up and just connected it. And it was like, you know, this isn't really a party. And so at that point I kind of 
had enough. And dying is like giving birth. It's not pretty. It's, you know, messy and hard and disgusting and all of that mixed into one. So I was there until the day, the night before he died the next morning. Mm-hmm. You know, he still had some friends there. And then he was cremated right after that, which is what I would have wanted to. Oh, I can't so. imagine how yeah, awful that time must have been, darling. Um, mm. Now, you mentioned birth there. Of course, you had a traumatic birth with your second child, your lovely daughter Morgan, during the AIDS crisis. Can you tell me how the AIDS crisis complicated your traumatic birth even further? Well, I had Morgan in a hospital in Marin County, which is right across Golden Gate Bridge, because the doctor that I went to to have my son was the big home birth doctor in San Francisco. And we had him at home, but then I had complications with Morgan. So I couldn't have her at home. Luckily, just a sidebar to that. He was a gay man. And it's funny because his whole practice was about home birth, natural birth. And then once the AIDS epidemic started, he slowly started moving into, you know, AIDS patients and Mm. he ended up opening a clinic in Marin you know he's gotten lots of accolades for the work he did but you know I had Morgan and I had a retained retained placenta so I lost a lot of blood like lots about half the blood in my body so I had to have blood transfusions to survive basically and all the blood was coming from San Francisco and I asked them had it been tested and they said it has but they they'd only started the testing in march of 85 so that's how close it was to not being tested at all and i had four transfusions so i had four times the possibility of having tainted blood Mm. and then when morgan was about a year and a half old she started getting pneumonia pneumocystis doesn't look the same in children as adults. So they wanted me to get tested for AIDS because I could have given it to her through breastfeeding. Well, Milton, my doctor said, don't have the test under your name because if your insurance company finds out, they'll cancel your policy if they can. So we are so paranoid. Yeah. We had it done under my maiden name. And then luckily it came back that, I didn't have AIDS, mm. but you know, Starsky and Hutch, do you remember that show? Oh yeah. 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 Paul Glazer, one of the, he was Starsky. I think his wife got AIDS in 82 when my son was born, well, she had a transfusion when she had her child and she ended up dying and both her kids ended up dying of AIDS. Oh my goodness. So it's, you know, so it would, obviously that would have been at the forefront of your mind then. Yeah. Yeah. It was very scary. Horrific. But when you're bleeding to death, you can't really say, no, I, I'll take a chance the other way. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. So, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, as you mentioned earlier, you, you've always been quite political. You were a hippie. You uh, protested Vietnam. Uh, and I know you still follow politics today. I'm going to know how you feel about uh, the president at the time, Ronald Reagan's response to the AIDS epidemic. Well, I think Ronald Reagan was a monster. In my opinion, other than Donald Trump, he was the worst presidency in my lifetime. He wouldn't even utter the words AIDS for three or four years mm. during, you know, the height of the epidemic. And then Ronald and Nancy were really good friends, I guess, with Rock Hudson. And when he contracted AIDS, Rock Hudson went to them and asked them if they could get him AZT. And they said, no, we're not going to get involved. <sighs> and that was, you know, celebrities, mm. which I just find disgusting. Mm. And he was the, governor of California and there's a you know a book called the late great state of California that is really interesting because it's you know all the horrible things he did in California too right he was not humanitarian even to people he was also that, incredibly a hardline no drug like sort of a lot of people would say the reason that there's so many strict laws that are putting people in jail for drugs now is that correct yes because Nancy, Nancy's whole slogan was just say no mm. to any drugs but it's funny because their son is gay. Is he really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Was he at the time? Well. Or was he just he young? Probably at the time? Was I don't even know. Young then. Right. His name is Ronald Jr. Yeah. I wonder if they had they lived with regret after their response to the AIDS epidemic. I wouldn't say he did, but she might have. I think he's still pretty evil. Mm. So after experiencing so much loss in San Francisco, you decided to relocate to Melbourne with your husband and daughter. Uh, now, Melbourne wasn't quite the thriving metropolitan that uh, we know it as now. Was that a huge culture shock? Well, we actually moved here with both my kids. Oh, did Russ, Russ come as well? was 15, Morgan was 11. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so it was a huge shock coming from the Castro in San Francisco, the gayest zip code in the world, and then we moved not just to Melbourne, but to Inverloch, which Inverloch's great, but mm. country Victoria is, is very a different, different story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you should have gone to Dalesford. You would have fitted right in in Dalesford. Well, yes. And it's funny because Americans love Australians, but Australians can be a little bit more stuck up about Americans. <laughs> yeah. Do not like Americans. <laughs> so it was not a real easy adjustment for the kids. It was easier for Morgan being younger. But it was yeah. really hard on Russ. And you pretty much started working at the Arts Centre then, didn't you? Three months after we got here. And worked there for, for a couple of decades. And, of course, in 2009, you hired a cute, young, blonde, handsome twink named Thomas Jaspers to come and work with you. Was it hard managing someone that's just so perfect? No, it was a delight. <laughs> and it's funny. When we hired you, when we did those circle things are the interview the group interview things yeah of course we clicked immediately mm -hmm. and never looked back mm -hmm. and i mean you remind me of mark i loved working with him we had so much fun together and the same with you 
it never felt like working when I was working with you because we, we would get the work done and then we would have fun, you know. We would work really hard and then we would have a giggles and yeah. talk about music and movies and musicals and then go have a drink after work and quite often end up at the Peel or at Circuit or, at you know, the 86 yeah. or something like that. I know, exactly. That's the only thing I miss about the Arts Centre right now It's <laughs> working with you. But we also had a lot in common. Yeah. And the Art Center in, you know, 1997 was different in the end of the 2010s. You know, I was shocked when I first worked there how conservative Mm. they were. Now, not long after I started at the Art Center, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, Can can you share that journey for us? How, How did you discover it and what was going through your mind? Well, it was right after we had taken on the whole project of the Tessitura, which is our ticketing system at the art center. And it was like a three-year tender process, picking out a new ticketing system. I'd been working, you know, really long hours. And I finally took some time off, went to America and I got back and um, I got up one day to jump in the shower to go to work. And I noticed my nipple was completely inverted. Mm. So I, didn't really tell anybody, you know, it's hard to get your head around it. I was of course. thinking, oh, I just slept on it wrong. And I did this, I did that. And then finally I mentioned to my husband and he knew exactly what it meant. So we, you know, went to the GP and then it just all happened really fast. But I was really fortunate to go to a great breast surgeon Actually, his partner was Kylie Minogue's doctor at one point. And now he's the head of, he's the chief surgeon at Peter McCallum. And he's the funniest guy. You know, I went to see him and he goes, oh, a little surgery, a little chemo, a little radiation. You'll be right. (laughs) He sounds like the perfect doctor for you. (laughs) A lot of people would feel very nervous with that. But for you, I can just see you going, oh, good. He knows what he's talking about. (laughs) But I did quit smoking because I thought smoking and being bald was a really bad look. So finally, but I would sneak them every once in a while. That's for sure. Yeah. But so then, you know, I went through that whole, you know, had surgery. The chemo was long because that was 20 weeks and the radiation was hard, but I got through it. And I used to get really annoyed when people would say, you're so brave because it's like, what the fuck are you going to do? Just roll over and die? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point, actually. You know, I'm going to fight this the best I can. Mm. So I, I'd been hired just as an assistant. I was this dumb young twink and and then you were diagnosed. So you had to take time off and I got stepped up into management. I remember one day you were out, you're, you're obviously on sick leave and you were out um, shopping with your daughter during your chemo. So you were all bald and everything. Uh, at Maya, and you met them. You got chatting with the makeup assistant at Maya. Is that correct? Well, Morgan wanted to get some makeup, so we went into Maya, and the guy behind the counter. We started talking to him, and somehow he's like, "Oh, are you? You know, are you doing cancer treatment? Because weird, being bald is one way you cannot hide that you're in the middle yeah. of chemo." So I started talking to him, and you know, we're chatting away. And I said, "Happened to say, because he was bald as well. Is that right?" That's right. He was a bald, chubby guy. And then he said, oh, the art center, do you happen to know Thomas Jasper? And I'm like, matter of fact, I'm his boss. So we ended up calling you. And I'm like, here, talk to 
somebody and then he got on the phone. So it was really funny. We were all talking away and then he worked at the Greyhound. So he's like, I'll put your name on the door. And of course it turned out that he was the one and only uh, delightful drag queen, Pussy Willow, who sadly has passed away uh, since then. Um, But that phone call was Pussy Willow called up with Deborah pretending that she wasn't there, called the art centre and put on this big gruff voice, pretended that they were making a complaint about Deborah, my new boss. And I was thinking, fuck, I've got this this person complaining about my boss who has chemo. I'm going to have to report my boss with this complaint. And it turned out they're all playing a prank on me, of course. And then Morgan, my daughter, goes to me when we're walking out, shaking her head, going, only you could find the only drag queen in Knox at my it's like that takes a knack so you did get through this but as if your family had not been through enough at this point a few years later you got a call to say that your eldest son russ who'd moved back to the states uh, by then was not well and it took a while to work out what was going on with him what was that like well we talked to him on a weekly basis but you know there were times where we thought maybe he was drunk because he was slurring his words acting really weird but he was coming out here for a visit because my daughter was getting married and he was going to be in the wedding. So he left from Chicago and arrived right after New Year's. The second he got off the plane, we knew something was wrong. I mean, Mark called me at the art center and said, I don't want to scare you, but there's something wrong with him. And I, you were there that day. I was mm. just like beside myself. And then we finally got an MRI and it turned out he had a huge brain tumor. So we, mm. He had to have surgery on that, and he didn't have any insurance. So Monash was very generous, and they did the whole procedure for like $20,000. But then Thomas started a GoFundMe page, which raised money from all the comedians in Melbourne, which was a huge help that we put towards you know his bill at Monash. So we were very, very fortunate that he was in this country. If he was in America, he would have died. Mm. I mean, being in this country and having breast cancer, you know, I could be sick, but not have to worry about money because I had like six months of sick leave and, you know, all my expenses were paid. I'm going to a world-class hospital at Peter McKellum and it's all covered. America, I would have been in debt thousands and thousands of dollars. We have been bankrupt. Mm. And I had my, well, I was going to go home this year for my 50th class reunion, 50th, get that. Wow. And one of my biggest reasons for not going, well, thought about not going was some of my friends are really Republicans and I don't know if I can even be nice about talking about Trump. I can't even get my head around anyone that would even vote for him. And our really close friends in California, I mean, they're vet, they have horses, he voted for Trump and they've barely spoken since then. Mm. It's just so divided the nation. And then you get the whole Black Lives Matter. It's like. I mean, it, you and I were saying only a few weeks ago, like, who would have thought that you'd look back at George W. Bush yeah. with fondness, you know? Like, at least whilst he was not a good person, he was not dividing the country as much as we're seeing now and disadvantaging the the, the most vulnerable people for political point scoring. And maybe I'm looking through rose-colored glasses right now, but George Bush was not a bad person. He was an idiot. I don't think he he was an idiot, and I don't think he ever wanted to be president. And I think he was run by Dick Cheney, 
Rumsfeld and all of those people. And he couldn't wait to say goodbye to Washington, D.C. Mm. Get the hell out of there. With international flights closed at the moment, will you will you be sad if you don't make if you never make it back to America? It's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. If you had said to me 15 years ago, I would have said I've been devastated not to go back to America. Yeah. So I remember being there with Morgan in the early 2000s and being in San Francisco and saying, should we get off the plane and just run to stay there? And now I am so grateful to be in this country mm. and consider this home that I would be okay if I never got back to America. I mean, I'd love to see my brother and my two sisters, mm. you know, and their families, but you know, with Skype and Zoom and everything else, it's not quite so isolating, but we are so lucky down here. Now you've got a granddaughter. You're about to have another grandchild. Do you hope your grandchildren have the same resil? What's the word? Rebellious spirit that you had. Yes, and I know Sadie will because yeah. she is a pocket rocket. She's. She said to me the other day, "Fuck you, Grandma." I'm like Sadie, you're three. And Deborah, I just spat red wine everywhere. Fuck you. <laughs> how how old Sadie? She's only a few years old. Three. Yeah, well, she's definitely her grandmother's grandchild if she's saying that. I couldn't believe it. It was like, well, she went to daycare and they said, these are the words you're not supposed to say. Yeah, right. She never so of course she never said like her. So, <laughs> yeah. so mm. and Morgan was the quietest, shyest child ever. Like, she would have been happy to just stay at home with me forever. And Sadie's just a wild woman. Yeah. So. <laughs> But, you know, the saddest thing for me is what kind of a world are they going to grow up in mm. between, you know, climate change, the politics, Look, you're right, but I, do you know what I'm, I'm encouraged by, you know, I'm not normally a very patriotic person, but watching how Australia has reacted to this virus compared to the United Kingdom and America and seeing how we are willing to to lock ourselves up and to uh, disadvantage ourselves for the better of everyone else, it does give me hope for the future, I think. Yes. I think Daniel Andrews has done a great job. I think most people in Australia are trying to come to the party. Mm. You know, it's hard not to think, oh, we could just duck out and do this, do that. But I think people now are taking it seriously. This is what we have to do. So... Now, finally, you've uh, received some more very unwelcome medical news recently, uh, as if you hadn't already had enough in your life. Can you tell us about that and, and how, how are you coping with it? Well, it's weird this all happened during COVID, mm. but, you know, I hadn't been feeling very great. I got a bad cold, couldn't get over it. Then I woke up one day and the breast that I had the lumpectomy in was all red and kind of bumply, like a pear. So I went and had a ultrasound and sent it all to Peter McKellum. And then they called me and said to come in, which I did. So they did a breast biopsy. And then I went back a few days later and they said it was all clear. So they said, you know, yay, go home. We're giving you great news. You know, I've got to tell a woman later in the day that she's not getting that good of news. So we went home, drove down to Mount Eliza, bought a $100 bottle of wine you know, yay, celebrate. Yeah. But I had to have a PET scan on Monday. So I went and did that. And then I was going to do a tele 
appointment on Friday because everybody thought it was fine. And then they called me on, sent me a text message on Thursday saying they want to see you at the hospital. So I knew it wasn't great. So I have metastasized breast cancer. They found three spots in my liver and one in my hip. And my liver is a problem because I like my wine. Of course, but, yeah. You know, so far my liver values have been okay. So that's good. Yeah. And I guess having cancer the second time around is a little bit scarier just because, you know, you think, yikes, yeah, is this going to be it? But I keep thinking, you know, I was born during great years of rock and roll and I've had a good life, except for I really want to hang around and see my grandkid, my granddaughters grow up. Of course. And to see you, Thomas. Of course. Oh, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Um, so yeah well and the other side of that is i am once again so lucky to be in this country because i'm on a hormone drug and a cancer drug that's somewhat like chemo but a year ago it cost five thousand dollars a month for 21 pills and they just put it on the pharmaceutical scheme so it costs seven dollars amazing so i just feel so fortunate Absolutely and amazing. peter mack is just the cutting edge of everything. So we are really lucky to have that. Mm. And, but but country. how are you coping mentally though? I know physically that at the moment you're doing all right and this medication's promising. I've, your resilience has always blown me away. Whenever I've heard these stories that you've told of, you know, your time in San Francisco, your time at, you know, at uni and that sort of stuff, or even your childhood, you've always had such amazing resilience. Do you still feel that confident stride now? Um, I probably feel less confident just because I don't feel as strong in myself as I did 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Chemotherapy and all those drugs do take their toll on your system. But, you know, Mark and I cope. We love movies. We love TV. So we've been watching a lot of different things mm. from different countries because we can't travel. And trying to stay as positive as possible. I have full confidence. If anyone can beat cancer, it's you, Deborah. You've beaten the shit out of a lot of other things in your life. I mean, <laughs> even just in this short conversation that we've heard so many of those things. You've lived an incredible life. We've still got a lot more living to do, I think. Sometimes when I'm lying in bed and I'm feeling a bit shit and I try to think of some of the, the achievements or my, my happiest moments, I'll go through a sort of a series of memories. For you, what are those standout moments from your life that really cheer you up a bit when you think about them? Well, probably I had two really great parents. They loved to dance. I remember coming home at night and they'd be jitterbugging in the front window, being totally embarrassed. Jitterbugging, wow. And I love San Francisco. I love meeting Mark. I loved Inverloch. I love meeting you. You know, how fortunate I've been to live in two countries in three amazing cities. You know, I lived through a great period of rock and roll. I hate being as old as I am, but I'm happy that I lived through that. I think you definitely lived through the best bits of music. I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We missed out on so that. from that point, I feel very fortunate. It's funny. Mark and I had a whole conversation today about if they came up with immunization for the virus, mm. who would we give it to and how would they distribute it? equally and i said to mark i feel like they should give it to the younger people before they give it to 
people our age, even though we're the most vulnerable, but we've lived our life. It's like, I want you and my granddaughter and my daughter and my son all to have a chance of having the years that we had. So I think COVID's put everything a little bit in perspective. Yeah. Well, and having cancer twice has put things in perspective. That does it but, as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, well, I very much hope that it never comes to that. I hope that as soon as we have the immunization, there's enough for everybody to, to have uh, to have their fair share. Yeah. Because you and I need to get back to the Peel dance floor I and know. do some do some bumps and some ammo and uh, annoy the Where's DJ. The gray house? I know. I know. I can't believe they tore it down and now it's. I can't either. They didn't even build anything thereafter. I like Ugh. going morning every time I drive up the Pian Highway. Bye. Yeah. Well, Deborah, you are an absolute icon in the gay community. Both the gay communities have passed, the current ones, the ones here, the ones all around the world. You've touched so many people's lives, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be one of them. Uh, I cannot wait to be racking up with you again in a toilet at a seedy gay bar sometime soon. <laughs> but until then, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your beautiful story with our listeners, Deborah. I love you so much. I love you too. Well, of course, a huge thank you for Deborah for being so open and honest and sharing her amazing stories with us in this episode. And boys, second last episode. Oh God, it's we're going to be clowning about by the time that last episode comes. <laughs> yeah, hey. of course, we have our uh, final after show happening. If you are a Patreon subscriber, and it's with our producer Dan Gregg, who we've been trying to get on. Yes, finally. Well. And he's refused to speak on on the podcast. So we finally talked him into it. <laughs> Until next week in our final episode. Bye. 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 If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.